Hi, everyone. Just before we get going, I want to remind you that everything we talk about and discuss should not be considered as investment advice. The purpose of what we talk about on Catherine Murray Media and Markets on YouTube, as well as Catherine Murray in conversation with on my podcast, should be viewed as informational and entertainment purposes only. Please definitely do your own research, your own homework, and definitely consult an investment professional before making any investment decisions. And also to note, some of us might hold positions in some of the stocks uh, that we discuss. Uh, Stefan, great to be able to catch up with you again. Um, it's been in so many years now, I think, that we've been speaking. And we originally met, I believe, at an event in Montreal that I was emceeing. And I think that was it. And I think it was for the mortgage industry. Um, it was indeed. Yeah, we both got this uh, beautiful little pen. We each had one, right? Yeah, I know. <laughs> so great. So, and from then on, I'm like, I need to interview him. And that's when we started doing mm -hmm. this. So thank you. Um, and, and why don't we first start from, um, you know, your position at, at, from the macro perspective. And, you know, we should probably talk about the BOC, the Bank of Canada, and, and what we learned from them this week. Yeah, from uh, from a BOC standpoint, clearly their assessment is that uh, uh, you can justify uh, making monetary conditions slightly less accommodative, and 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 they're reducing QE tapering. Uh, they've embarked on QE tapering a few months ago, Catherine, and I think that the storyline for them is that it will continue and eventually it will lead to higher interest rates. But uh, for us, this is a story for uh, mid next year. So our first, we've penciled in the first rate hike by the Bank of Canada in July of next year. And how does that dovetail with uh, the U.S. Federal Reserve, your expectations there? And of course, the reason why I'm bringing this up um, is because that's gonna have an impact on the Canadian dollar and it has already. I, I totally agree with you. So I think there's scope for the Canadian dollar to retake what it lost in recent weeks. So we lost about five cents. Uh, and I think we can take it back on, on the premise that uh, our economy is likely to do uh, uh, probably outperform the U.S. And in the coming months as uh, we ro reopen certain sectors. And I think what's crucial, uh, Catherine, too, is as central bankers tend to target the labor markets, the biggest divergence between Canada and U.S. right now, uh, in terms of GDP recovery, it's similar. Or you could argue that the GDP U.S. is outpacing Canada, but Canada is really outpacing the U.S. in terms of labor market recovery. So we're just two percent, less than two percent from pre-COVID level, whereas the U.S. is still four percent away from that. So this divergence between monetary policy is likely to endure for uh, a few more months. So why why is that happening? Why is Canada's labor market seemingly in a better position than the US. You could say that the uh, fiscal stimulus was similar on both sides of the border, but uh, Canada was more surgical in terms of targeting the labor market. So uh, I think you know uh, the wage subsidy has had pretty bad press recently, but at the end of the day, Catherine forces to admit that the labor force participation rate for prime age workers, people aged 25 to 54, is actually back to its pre-COVID level, while the U.S. is still significantly depressed. So the measures were introduced to keep a closer link between employers and employees, so as to when the economy would be able to reopen, you get a bigger bang for your buck in terms of overall economic activity. That's why I say we're in relatively good shape for that. So the U.S was uh, less surgical than Canada in terms of applying its uh, fiscal stimulus. Hmm. So that, that's an interesting um, aspect to, to think about and to even acknowledge and recognize. Um, at the same time too, though, 
you know, we talk, I think, on both sides of the border of such uh, concerns surrounding labor shortages. Um, what, how, how do you think about that as, as you look at the impact on wages and inflation, wage inflation and or just inflation? It's so difficult to assess right now, Katrin. We know there's a significant pool of available workers that is sidelined because of uh, relatively generous uh, programs offered, income support programs offered by good government. And uh, we won't get a clear picture of that before uh, later this fall when these programs uh, come to terms. So, uh, but uh, there is probably, and that's what central banks are talking about, uh, some uh, scarring in labor markets, but maybe not to the same extent that they thought a few months ago. So uh, the jury is still out on that, Katrin, but mm -hmm. I would think that by and large, what we're seeing, the beginning of slightly higher wages uh, makes sense. And you know what, Katrin, I think at the same time, the pandemic has taught us that the global supply chain uh, was not optimal. Uh, we've concentrated too much production in certain countries. And as we reshore uh, activity uh, in North America or within the uh, European countries or North America um, with, within OECD economies, uh, I, I think there's scope for wages to be somewhat stickier uh, going forward. So uh, we'll see about that. But clearly there's both cyclicals and structural factors that are at play right now. Mm -hmm. So many, and it sounds as though um, it will be different post-pandemic versus pre-pandemic in terms of um, many more countries looking to onshore. Perhaps we will see a bit of deglobalization. I mean, that was almost, well, that was occurring pre-pandemic uh, under the Trump administration, or at least it was setting the stage for that to occur. Um, do you think, and is that a big factor in your thinking, in your analysis in terms of what to expect and, and where to place money? I, I absolutely, Catherine. I, I think that add to this the ESG component to the equation. Uh, you saw the European Union uh, yesterday calling for a carbon border tax. Uh, I think there should be a carbon border tax put in place also for North America. And, and I, I think that plays with the whole story where you will get conditions that are more apt to uh, onshore uh, production. So what that means in the overall picture on the inflation front, Catherine, is that we've been accustomed to seeing inflation in the one to one and a half percent range for a long time. But I think that the two to three percent range makes more sense going forward and obviously uh, that does impact what what you see in terms of how you invest your money going mm -hmm. forward okay so you do think that we will see um, a bit of inflation despite the fact that we have not been able to achieve inflation since the financial crisis and it's not necessarily going to come it sounds like from monetary policy or fiscal policy but more so um structural change onshoring I think so. And, and, and again, this, this ESG component, if you, at some point you want uh, the price of the products that you consume to reflect the, the environmental component to it or damage to it, mm -hmm. uh, you have to send a price signal. This is why I think ESG, in my opinion, can only be uh, inflationary going forward. So that's why I say the 2 to 3% inflation world, mm -hmm. uh, which is not hyperinflation, Catherine, don't get me no. wrong here. But there's something completely different from what we've been seeing over the past decade. Interesting. So, so to kind of unpack that a little bit, ESG is going to increase the cost of goods for people listening. Is that fair? 
Yes, and, 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 and I think it makes sense. Uh, if you want to send a price signal to consumers, uh, it's got to be through prices. That's the real signal. That's the, and from a, 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 a government perspective, Katrin, um, the uh, interesting thing about ESG is that the social acceptance for these types of taxes, because we all know that in this post-COVID environment, uh, we need to, you know, uh, uh, stabilize the balance sheets of various governments. And for that to happen, you know, some increase in taxation was to be expected. And I think ESG will be probably the favorite uh, route taken by, by governments to, to achieve this higher revenue stream. You know, and I can understand that as well. I guess, Stefan, it, it's interesting too, though, um, you know, pre-pandemic, we were seeing, you know, the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. There's that bifurcation going on, that gap widening. Post-pandemic, um, we're also seeing that and we might continue to see that. You know, another tax, even though it has acceptance and social acceptance, um, you know, is that not going to widen the gap even further? Because, you know, if, if companies are going to uh, pass through the price increases to the consumer, it's not going to differentiate in terms of who can who who can afford the ESG or, or not. I mean, this is, I, I'm just kind of thinking out loud uh, in terms of the potential impact that has um, on, on society. And the question of course is, will those wages uh, keep, keep up with that pace? It's, a, it's an excellent question, Katrin. So what they will want to do, policymakers, that is, is if you put in place these higher taxes at some point, you also have to a, a situation where you accompany these higher taxes with um, a, social safety net that is more uh, adapt to, adapted to lower these uh, discrepancy uh, between uh, income or, or wealth discrepancy between people. So I, I think it's a mix of both things. You use ESG uh, and at the same time you uh, bonify your social safety net. And one of the key things to be able to do this, Catherine, is you have to increase your employment to population ratio to maximize your tax base. So it's, again, this is why onshoring, reshoring makes a lot of sense. Uh, this is how we gets back to your question about less globalization going forward. You can't do it overnight, given you know how, how integrated the supply chains are right now, uh, but over a span of you know, over, you know, three to five years, I think something important might happen, Katrin. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, it's, um, you know, talk about being surgical, <clears throat> surgical, it's going to be so key, um, you know, for policymakers to really get it right. Because if you're saying that in order to really kind of pay for this uh, and, and to broaden out the, the workforce, you also have to incentivize people to want to work. And of course, with some of the checks, um, you know, this is very controversial, you know, and I, I do believe that the checks have been needed. Absolutely. But, you know, there's also, it's such a fine line and it's such an art to the checks and how much it should be and, and for who to make sure that we incentivize people to, to go to work. Totally agree with you. And at the same time, uh, uh, you, uh, if you want to bring some production back to your country, you want to make sure that you have skilled labor force. So hence, hence my view that, you know, what, what we see right now, the checks were extremely generous, you're right. And, and we see people with less education that actually benefited the most from these checks, which was to be expected. 
but now you know uh you, you know for some of these uh, less educated people so people with high school or less in terms of education employment is still 20 percent below its pre-covid levels so to incentivize people to get back in the labor market you know there's got to be a social safety net that also targets uh, getting you know some training or some encouragement for corporations to get subsidized to provide this training to that segment mm -hmm. of the population it only makes sense if you can get people back in the workforce capturing this whole story where you bring production back to your country. Mm -hmm. Understood. Um, so when we think about the potential then for inflation to actually move up to that two to four percent, let's talk a little bit about what you expect uh, on the on the yield curve and, and the U.S. 10 year yield and what it's telling us right now. And and, you know, again, Savan, not to bore people with the minutia of a U.S. 10 year yield, but, you know, we need to kind of put it in context as to why this is so important. I, I think it's I would say it's a bit, I'm, I'm, I'm open-minded, Catherine. When I look at the flattening of the yield curve, I say, listen, it's normal that it happens at this stage of the cycle. What's unusual, however, is that, you know, you get a flattening of the yield curve sometimes because, you know, your, your 10 year will move up and the two year moves faster. But this time around, uh, there's been a big drop in the 10 year uh, bond yield in the US. And in, in my opinion, maybe, you know, people are saying that, you know, you might, you know, the COVID variants, you are concerned about a potential economic slowdown. We'll see in the coming weeks, or maybe people are concerned about these programs, government programs that are being phased out or eliminated and that will impact consumer spending. But Catherine, there is substantial excess savings around the world that might be spent. So I don't think the end of the programs are the end of the world. Actually, from a Canadian standpoint, we estimate that even without the programs, the disposable income in this country is already back to its pre-COVID level because a lot of jobs have been created for people with more education, ability to work from home, etc. So I think that right now, when we see a 10-year treasury yield in the U.S. at 1.3 percent. We, we think that that's a bit low considering uh, the economic backdrop. So we would expect rates to be up closer to 1.8 percent by the end of this year. So we'll see, Catherine. There's no there's no blueprint to navigate a post-pandemic environment with all these special programs in place. Uh, but we would think that the backdrop is still favorable to uh, pretty good growth in the months ahead that would imply uh and, and the reason why we care about the um the yield curve is because if we have to, you know let, let's remember back when when the yield curve was flattening and of course if it dips uh if the u.s 10-year yield dips uh, further it's an inverted yield curve that that has tended to signal a recession is coming so that kind of that, that's why we focus on it and and why we care about it at the same time too let's dovetail where you believe we are in terms of the business cycle. We almost kind of forget to talk about the business cycle. So what exactly does the business cycle even mean today and, and how it correlates to the stock market, which of course is hitting all new record highs? Oh, that's an interesting question, Catherine. The reality is you analyze a business cycle, there are six different phases, right? There's your, your there's your peak, there's your recession, there's your trough, uh, there's the recovery, the expansion and the mature phase. And the mature phase is when uh, your estimate or GDP, observed GDP is actually above your estimate of GDP. To give you a sense of what, how it long it took to go through all the different phases in the previous business cycle, it took over a decade, Catherine. But this time around, uh, it was an unusual recession uh, created by a pandemic and these government programs were uh, deployed relatively quickly. So um, 
the thing is we've gone through almost six phases of the economic cycle in 18 to 24 months. So this, is make, this makes it interesting as you enter the mature phase, so as, as you are about to enter the mature phase, um, you get uh, a situation where inflation is a little bit stickier but the early phases of the mature phase, as long as the yield curve remains relatively steep, and that's where we are right now, we're still steep, uh, remains beneficial for uh, global growth, employment recovery, uh, and the cyclical sectors. So our assessment is as long as the yield curve does not flatten to 50 basis points or so, what about 100 basis points right now, uh, things are still looking good for the cyclical sectors and for the S&P TSX that tends to outperform the S&P 500 early in the mature phase. Hmm. Um, Okay, so a couple things I want to pick up on there. Can the mature phase, given the fact that the other phases have been so condensed in a short amount of time, um, can the mature phase maybe last longer than we've ever seen in the past? In other words, we it might be mature, but we've got a nice long runway of economic stability. Is that possible? That's an interesting question because historically we've always entered the mature phase with real interest rates that were positive. This is the first time we will enter the mature phase uh, with real interest rates, take uh, five year or 10 year tips in the US uh, that are below zero. So historically, uh, that provides you uh, with more attractiveness to the stock market because these interest rates are so much uh, below inflation or these real rates are so much depressed. So this is interesting. Uh, I'll give you a few numbers. The median duration of the matured phase is normally 30 months or so in the US. The shortest ever observed was 16 months and the longest was 72 months. Uh, so I would argue, Catherine, is until we get a surge in real rates uh, that would threaten the mature phase, uh, we're getting into that phase in the cycle in relatively good shape. And who knows how long it might be. Uh, as I say, a number of factors are at play right now. But so far, entering the mature phase with negative real interest rates uh, would suggest that uh, we probably have a good runway. Yeah, I mean, you, if I've got my math right, maybe you can see five years. It's, it's uh, you can't, you can't, no, but you can't rule it out. But, but again, what, what we'll have to see is what's the policy, what's the reaction function of policymakers in their attempt to have less globalization and how aggressive they will be uh, with the ESG related taxation. We'll have yeah. to. Yeah, fair, fair point. There's a lot that can happen between now and five years. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's for sure. And I think that's one of the difficulties to those, Stefan, because as we know, I don't know, for, for the past 10 to 15 years at least, I think that people's, and we, we always, you know, we joke about this, but you have to kind of understand people's mindsets in terms of what time frame really means. You know, what does your short-term time frame versus medium and long-term actually mean, right? Um, and, and, you know, sometimes five years now seems a long way away because there are just so many different policies that can come into play or not. So um, it, it is difficult, but it's nice, you know, you do see those investors, Stefan, that really do see what is going to come for the next five years, and they might not know all the different policy uh, implications, but um, but they're going to take a stance, and they've got their five-year plan. I mean, you see that a lot in private equity investors, that's for sure. Yeah. No, you're 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 right, Catherine, and and there's a 
there's uh, it's very difficult to calibrate an economic model to this type of business cycle that we're, we're living right now. But uh, as I say, to the extent that you uh, the central banks are out there and they want to get employment back to pre-COVID level, and I don't think this can be achieved overnight, uh, you have a sense that within the next 24 to 36 months, monetary policy is unlikely to turn restrictive. Yes, rates might go up, but to turn restrictive, that mm -hmm. might take a long time. So uh, yes, uh, under these circumstances, uh, the duration of the mature phase might be an interesting one. Yeah, um, and just one, one point I wanna pick up on there because I read this, it was this week, um, and I do not recall, I should have looked it up, but it's the same, it doesn't matter almost who it was that said it, but um, IMF, OECD, concerned maybe that, um, the monetary policies from central banks won't be as um, integrated as we've seen in the past, you know, after the financial crisis, you know, everybody was keeping rates lower for longer, doing their bond purchases. And when you start to see central banks around the world employ different speeds of pulling back, is that a risk to you? So you're probably synchronization, right? That was the term yeah. you're looking for. Okay, mm -hmm. yeah. So synchronization, I totally agree with you that if you uh, question globalization by itself, that would mean you might desynchronize monetary cycles in certain countries. Uh, I think that that is a possibility, Catherine. Yes, uh, a less globalized world will be less synchronized in terms of monetary policy, depending on the relative success of different jurisdiction in applying their policies. And as you know, also with central bankers now targeting employment, depending on the rules that are in place or the employment, uh, uh, the laws that govern the different jurisdiction, yeah, you'll, you'll, you can get a big difference. Don't get me wrong. I think that central banks will remain key economic actors going forward, but you're right to suggest that synchronization might not be there and not bring, it might bring more volatility. And I think that's that that you know this this compression of volatility with a more globalized world that we saw over the past decade, I think you probably have to revisit that story going forward. Okay. And and Stefan, from a strategy perspective right now, how are you advising institutional clients to position themselves? Well, I, I think rates are quite low at 1.3% of 10-year treasury yield. So if, if my story is right, that there's this inventory rebuilding cycle that takes place over the coming months and what's not over and that the variants do not lead to a, uh, a renewed closure of certain sectors as you can keep the stress off the healthcare system if people are vaccinated. So to the extent that it goes well on the pandemic front or goes doesn't worsen, uh, I would argue that there's, uh, uh, you know, there's, there's still a, uh, the, the reflation trade uh, might catch a, a second win. And uh, we still think that under these circumstances uh, along the cyclical sector, so S&P, TSX for the most part, right? Uh, energy does well under these circumstances too, uh, makes a lot of sense. And at the same time, it would also suggest that if the, the, the reflation trade catches a second win, Catherine, that US dollar depreciation would be part of that outlook for the next, uh, uh, between now and, and, and year end. So it's difficult to make a projection right now, but for the next three to six months, we still think that uh, there's scope for the reflation trade to uh, catch another bid and for the Canadian dollar to appreciate and therefore more concentrated on resource sector than value versus growth will come back. Okay, and um, it sounds like a, it, more Canadian versus US. Uh, 
You're right, but uh, at the same time, the inventory rebuilding cycle cannot take place without more renewed economic activity in the emerging markets that actually produce a lot of these consumer goods that we want. So uh, I still think that emerging markets, which haven't done all that well since the start for all the past three months or so, uh, could come back. But a lot of that, uh, Catherine, will be dependent on what happens on, on the big US dollar, which has a tremendous correlation between uh, uh, with the risk assets at this point in time as people are uncertain about the Fed, but we don't see the Fed uh, hiking rates before 2023. So under these circumstances, uh, the reflation trade is still a, a trade that makes sense and it should uh, allow emerging markets to do somewhat better in the coming months. And, um, and just to pick up on some of the supply issues and the bottlenecks, because that obviously gets talked a lot about in the media. And, you know, I think people are scratching their heads in some ways, like why is it taking so long to get a refrigerator um, why, where are the container ships? Why are the container ships, you know, four times the price that they used to be, you know, 3000 up to 15,000 or what have you, how do you explain some of that and what kind of impact are you projecting it to have? Oh, uh, I mean, the supply chain, everything's bogged down right now. Everybody thought that they were they were shutting down their business for the next few quarters when the pandemic hit and all of a sudden these government programs stepped in and vaccination happened much quicker than we thought. So people started spending much faster. So no supplies were ready for that. And at the same time, you have issues uh, certain port closures and, and important uh, ones in, in, in China as, as some people uh, uh, were impacted by, 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 by COVID. So uh, I think it, you know, it will take some time. Uh, and, and, and don't forget, Catherine, at the same time, this old ESG push towards, you know, electrical vehicle, everybody wants the same thing at the same time, uh, produces constraint on the supply chain. So I think things will improve. Uh, but in the midst of a global inventory rebuilding cycle, like we're seeing in the US, it will take some time. So from a supply chain perspective, input costs will be higher and producers or retailers need to become resilient, in the more, resili more resilient in the post-pandemic environment. So remember the good old days, Catherine, where you could, didn't have to have any inventories as you could just order it and get it uh, in just a few weeks. Yeah, just that in time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's part of revisiting this story about the global supply chain. So as you know, retailers or manufacturers want to build resiliency, they have to rebuild their inventories also. So that's why I think the uh, global inventory rebuilding cycle will last a little bit longer than usual. And under these circumstances, you know, uh, you know, producer prices or this global supply chain is likely to be stressed for for the coming quarters, which will mean I stickier prices, hence our view that inflation is unlikely to come down very hmm. rapidly. And so you talk about um, the cyclicals being an area you want to invest in specifically, which sectors do you like? Uh, okay, uh, I think in the current context where uh, Global, out, global production might be good and people might start traveling. And I think the energy sector still makes a lot of sense. Uh, I think base metals, industrials makes a lot of sense. Again, that's all uh, based on this, this inventory rebuilding cycle that lasts more than just a few weeks. It will last a few quarters, Katrin. So that's why we're positioning the, uh, the portfolio that way. Um, Yes, uh, there is a role to play for IT. IT does well in the early phase of, of, of the uh, of the mature phase of the cycle. So these would be the sectors we would be uh, uh, 
recommending to clients. Anything that's more interest rate sensitive, given our view on, 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 on 10-year treasury in the US, uh, I think it's a bit too early to be defensive as, as rates might, might increase in the coming months. Okay. Um, and Stefan, just to wrap it up here, bottom line, you, you sound pretty positive. I think it's too early to be negative. Uh, obviously, I'm not a medical doctor, so I'm assuming that uh, things do not worsen on the pandemic front. And that's still a big if, Catherine. I recognize that. Uh, but at the same time, you have to have some conviction that these uh, these government programs, the success savings will be uh, deployed. And if we're right on the economic cycle, uh, on the cyclical factors, uh, I think I think we're okay. Yeah. Uh, in terms of being a little bit more optimistic for the coming months, I think it was, uh, you know, the reflation trade unwinded uh, very, very quickly, in my opinion, and this does not justify the current levels that we're seeing in certain asset classes and with, with respect to rates or currencies right now. So uh, I think, uh, as I say, uh, positioning yourself for better growth in the coming months still makes sense. Okay, Stefan, we'll leave it there. Great to um, to get, catch up with you and get and get your views as always. Thank you. All the best, Catherine. Bye bye. Thank you. You too.